Today's sermon text is taken from Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, and it deals largely with the proper way to worship God. You hear a lot these days about worship preferences, and we're uh, a little bit of an odd church here at Calvary in that we, we have a traditional style of worship, which has become increasingly rare in our culture. We worship in a uh, traditional sanctuary, and more and more you'll find that worship services are held in different types of settings, auditoriums, movie theaters, schools, buildings built for other uses and then perhaps converted to become churches, but intentionally designed to not look like a traditional sanctuary. And usually in those places of worship, the worship service itself is far from traditional, more resembling in many ways a, a concert followed by a lecture. That's what they prefer. Now, of course, you're all here at Calvary, so, so you're used to a different kind of worship service, a more traditional service, and that's probably uh, what you prefer, a service that has... Uh, you know, an organ and hymns and a choir and, and pews and a, a pulpit and, and these types of things, uh, a liturgy that's more traditional. That's what you prefer. What we really need to come to realize, though, that, that, that regardless of, of what kind of worship services we prefer, the the, the whole issue itself really kind of leads us down the wrong road. Because regardless of what our tastes are and regardless of what, uh, what uh, different sociologists and, and church studies people tell us about the way we ought to market our church services and our churches themselves, proper worship is not really at all about our preferences. The proper worship of God has far more to do with God himself. And in our sermon text of Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7, the preacher helps to remind us of this fact today, helping us to readjust our views so that perhaps as we come into worship, we are not so much at the center of our own world, but rather we place God at the center and come to worship him. Before we take a look at this text, let's take a moment to pray and ask God to indeed help us reorient ourselves. Let's pray. Our Lord, we, we do readily acknowledge that too often we are quick to see the world and all that is in it from our own perspective Give us eyes to see as you see. And not only may we see the world as you see it, but may we see you as we ought to. As the king of glory before whom we should bow down. The one whom we should praise and magnify and exalt the one to whom we owe all things. 
gospel we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here now, Ecclesiastes 5, verses 1 through 7. This is the inspired word of God. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word, which inspired by God is our only infallible rule for faith and practice. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Well, we live here in the United States, uh, uh, a country that is, in terms of its comparisons to the rest of the world, a relatively young country. You know, I thought of it the other day, we're, we're not that far away. Some of you remember the bicentennial in 1976. I have vague recollections. I was almost five at the time. It occurred to me that you know, we're coming up before too long here on the 250th anniversary. That would be kind of a big deal, I'm sure. But, but in terms of history, 250 years is nothing. If you go over to Europe, you'll find that history goes back much further than that. You'll find places that are much older than that. You know, I... I had the good fortune of going over to Hungary when I was in college for uh, a couple months and spent some time over there. And, and while we were there, we traveled to Austria for a, a weekend. And, and so I got to see some of that uh, area. And then many years ago, after Aaron and I had only been married for a relatively short time, we took a trip where we got to go to England and France. And so, so. Between these two trips, I saw many old castles that were, were dating back long times. And regardless whether they dated back a few hundred years or, or many hundreds of years, they all had one thing in common. They were clearly built to be glorious. They, they were intended as buildings to communicate glory really didn't matter whether it was, was you know, the, the palaces that were currently lived in or the ones that had been made into essentially museums. 
It was very clear when you looked at them. These were not ordinary houses. Right? Even though they, they didn't have many of the amenities that we have today, and in many ways we, we live a more comfortable life in our relatively small homes, those palaces were glorious. And, and it's interesting the way that a building can communicate such glory. Think now of Solomon's temple, right? Because, because that's the context in which we find Ecclesiastes being written. Solomon's temple built in Jerusalem by Solomon after the pattern of the first temple, which was built after the pattern of the tabernacle, which was built after the pattern of the Garden of Eden, right? And, and this temple of Solomon was, was built to be more beautiful, more magnificent, more awe-inspiring than any of its predecessors. And this beauty, this magnificence, this awe-inspiring nature was intended not just to draw glory for itself, but rather to redirect the attention of those who entered to God. It was to proclaim his glories, to, to shift our attention, their, their attention to the heavens. Then much the same as traditional church architecture is. Just side note here, I mean, there's a reason that traditionally churches have, have high vaulted ceilings, right? It's, it's, it's to lift our attention upward, heavenward, to God. It wasn't just that they wanted to have really expensive heating bills, right? was purposeful. Lift your attention up to God. And so, while it might seem in our culture today that has lost very much of this idea of the transcendence of God, it might seem odd to us. It would have not seemed odd at all for those people who first read Ecclesiastes 5 when they came to verse 1 and they saw the preacher say, guard your steps when you go into the house of God. It is not a light thing to enter into the presence of God. It is not, not a trivial thing. It may seem at first glance that this, this passage with instructions about worship is just randomly placed here in Ecclesiastes, but I, I don't think that's the case. Remember, remember that that last week when we were looking at chapter 4, what were we talking about but, but, rather, but the, the existence of God's people and how we're supposed to exist in community with one another, that we weren't supposed to be solo agents out, out here running about on our own. And, and so now we come to this idea of corporate worship. It's the, the most foundational thing that we do corporately, right? So, so if we're to live with one another, this is kind of the starting point of that. And note that the preacher says, guard your steps when you go. He doesn't say, guard your steps if you go into the house of God. He says, when you go. He assumes that this is going to happen. Right? He assumes that this is going to be part of the life of the people of God. Of course, they would come into the house of God. Now, he's not saying necessarily that that if you miss church one Sunday, well, 
well, that's going to condemn you any more than he's saying just by being in church one Sunday will that save you. That's not the case. But what, what I am saying here that God is saying to us here is that it should be our regular practice to gather with the people of God before the throne of God for the worship of God to the glory of God. It should be a regular part of our, of our life. The author of Hebrews says as much in chapter 10. He says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another's. And all the more as the day is drawing near. The idea is that we should, should long to reach out to the one who has already reached out to us. We should long to lay hold of the one who will never let go of us. We should long to love the one who has first loved us. We should love others as a result as well. But we do these, these good works of loving God and, and loving others. Before we do them, we must first hear. That's really the gospel pattern always. Hear, then do. Hear, then do. It's, it's in the Old Testament. You look back to the, the Ten Commandments, right? What does God say at the beginning of them? But I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is who I am. Hear this. Know this. Realize I have already showered you with my grace. I have delivered you. Therefore... Have no other gods before me and the rest of the Ten Commandments to follow. Or the most foundational, basic statement of faith among the Old Testament Jews from Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. In the very next verse, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Hear, then do. Hear, then do. First, we must hear. And so, even in the New Testament, we see that pattern, right? In 1 John 4, we love because he first loved us. We need to be reminded of that truth. We need to be told that truth. We need to, to, to remember it. We need to know that. We need to hear that God has loved us first. And therefore, we love in response to that. So to draw near to listen in verse 1 is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. To listen is foundational to what we are doing when we gather here to worship. We, we offer up prayers. We sing songs of worship. We, we give an offering of financial gifts. We do all sorts of things when we gather here on Sunday mornings, don't we? But, but foundational is the idea that we must draw near to listen. Not to listen to me, not to, to listen to an elder who's speaking in worship, but to listen to God. That's why we have a, a call to worship at the beginning of the worship service that is taken from God's word. That's why after we pray a prayer of confession, we have a, a, a word of assurance of forgiveness that is taken from God's word. That is why we read together each Sunday morning a unison scripture reading that is taken from God's word. That is why we have a sermon each week 
That is covering a passage of scripture that is found in God's word. And that is why we depart to a benediction or a blessing that is taken from God's word. We come here primarily, foundationally, to hear God speak to us. That is the most basic thing we do every time we gather. It's the primary thing in worship is not to speak to God, but to hear from God. And so if we are going to speak, and there is a place for speaking for sure, but if we are going to speak, we should choose our words carefully to not speak rashly, but to speak from the heart. Sometimes it's, it's, it's something that we do, isn't it, where we, we just kind of speak. We want to say things, you know. So, some of us are more prone to this, but, but where we just feel like we always have to be saying something. If there's silence for, you know, three seconds, we have to rush in and fill that by saying something. We can't have silence where we just sit and, and wait. We have to talk. It gets real uncomfortable. Watch. Right? <laughs> yeah. I feel like, just say something. Right? Well, we need to be careful when we speak. Sometimes we, we, we say things just to say things because we don't like silence. Other times we say things because we want to show how spiritual we are, right? You know, well, I, I, you know, I, I was, you know, reading in my Bible just today, dot, dot, dot. Or, or perhaps we say, well, I, I've been praying for you when I really haven't. Or things like that. We want to be careful that we're not rashly saying these words in essence taking the name of the Lord in vain that's kind of what happened with Peter remember on the night when Jesus was betrayed Jesus told his disciples you know you're all going to you're going to abandon me you're going to forsake me here what did Peter say but though they all fall away because of you I will never fall away even said you know I'll die with you Jesus Soon thereafter, he was denying Christ. Not once, not twice, three times. And consider our, our unison scripture reading that we had today, right? The, the really religious guy, the Pharisee, the guy who, who follows all the rules, who does all the things that they were supposed to do, right? And he's the guy to all the world who looks like the really spiritual guy. And, and we learn because his prayer exposes his heart He's really just a prideful jerk, right? And, and he does not go away justified. He should have chosen his words more carefully. Sometimes, we, you know, we, we just speak too quickly. We just say things. You know, we just like to hear the sound of our own voice. Ready, shoot, aim. Right? Well, it's better to heed the words of the preacher in verse 2. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Remember the transcendence of God. He is in heaven, you are on earth. He is in heaven. He is the glorious God. He is the creator. God, you are his creature. You are here on earth. There is a, a distance between us. He is 
more magnificent and more awesome than we can imagine. Our, our words should be few. They should be few when we're talking with each other. We should be careful in our words, but how much more with a transcendent God? I mean, Scripture is replete with things that speak about how we should not speak quickly. James 1.19, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak. Proverbs 10, 19, when words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Proverbs 17, 28, even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. Proverbs 21, 23, whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. If this is true as we speak with one another, how much more so when we speak with a holy God why perhaps Jesus told his disciples when you pray do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do thinking that they will be heard for their many words and instead told us to pray shortly, briefly simply our Father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name you know, Mark Twain once said better to remain silent and be thought a fool and to open your mouth and remove all doubt. Right? Indeed, that's this, the idea of the Proverbs here. Well, the preacher goes on in verse 3 and says, For a dream comes with much business, a fool's voice with many words. He's not saying don't dream big dreams, but he's saying here that, that oftentimes big dreams require much work, but instead come with much talk much talk and thus they remain nothing but dreams and so it is that we should be careful about what we say to God when we make a vow to God in verse 4 we see do not delay in paying it for he has no pleasure in fools pay what you vow it is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay so he's saying don't don't make a promise to God God if, if you do this for me I will do that right and, and you have every intention, maybe, of doing that, whatever that is. But then you don't do that. He's saying, just don't say you're going to. Don't make the vow in the first place. You're far better off. Malachi 1.14 tells us, Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts. And my name will be feared among the nations. You see, say, don't, don't promise something to God and then come up short. We should fear God. We should respect God more than that. Vows and oaths are a serious business. They are a promise to the almighty God. So verse 6, let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. The commentaries tell us that, that what this is talking about largely is probably uh, the person who makes a vow to pay something to the temple treasury. Right? They, they basically say, okay, I'm, I'm going to give the temple uh, $100, let's say. Uh, you know, Historically, we don't do pledges here at Calvary, but a lot of churches do this where they have a, a pledge, you know, and they kind of figure out things, make their budget based on the pledges that, that come in. And that's the idea of how they did it the, in the temple. There were, there were pledges, there were vows that were made where people would give this money. But 
But then sometimes people who vowed to give that $100 to the temple never gave it, right? They, they, maybe they intended to up front. Maybe they just wanted to look good up front saying they would give it and never gave it. We don't know. It doesn't really matter. What we see here is that, that a messenger would come. And so, so oftentimes, sometimes the priest would come themselves, but oftentimes they'd send a messenger. And the messenger would come, and, and he was kind of the collections guy, I guess, right? You know, knocking on the door, hey, buddy, you know, uh, just kind of wondering what's going on. You said you were going to give $100, and you haven't seen the $100. That doesn't sound like a very fun job to me, being that person, you know, uh, I think back to when I worked for Enterprise Rent-A-Car and I had to go repossess rental cars that people didn't return. It was not very fun. This sounds like that kind of job, but, but what the preacher is saying here is don't put yourself in this position where you've made this promise, where you've made this vow, but you haven't followed through on it. God is not amused by it whether it's intentional or not. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands, it says. Why, why would we want to provoke God to anger, is what he's asking. Why, why would you desire to do that? What, what foolishness is there that would, that would lead you to want to provoke an almighty and righteous God to anger? For when dreams increase, verse 7, and words grow many there is vanity you see words are are an expression of the heart they we say things right and, and we're too quick i think to say you know we say something that comes out you know we're like oh man I, I really shouldn't have said that and and so what do we say oh i didn't mean that well you know sometimes i guess you say things and it just comes out the wrong way but but usually we really did mean it, didn't we? But now we feel bad about it. And so we want to backtrack. Jesus tells us that it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. And so usually our sinful words are very much a reflection of our sinful heart. And such words are vanity, a chasing after the wind. They're an effort oftentimes to elevate ourselves, to gain control of the world. And so we end where we began, with the notion that, that worship is ultimately not about us and what we want. We need to shift our mindset and our attention toward a holy and glorious God. At the end of verse 7 we read, but God is the one you must fear. God is the one you must fear. The idea is one of reverential awe. God is the one that we must stand in awe at. We should, be, we should be amazed at. We should be overwhelmed with. I love what the psalmist says in verse one, or in Psalm 130. He says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? See what he's saying? He's saying, Lord, if, if you kind of kept track of iniquities, if you just kept a little ledger, of all of our goods and all of our bads, right? Who of us could stand? It's a rhetorical question. He's saying none of us could stand. Each and every one of us from the, the most rotten, the most horrible, all the way up to the most holy and wonderful. 
would fall short. None of us could stand before you, God. You are so glorious and magnificent. But he says this then in the very next verse. But with you there is forgiveness, which is a good thing. With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Wouldn't you think it would be more feared if there wasn't forgiveness, right? We'd be, oh man, I'm really scared now because God's not going to forgive me. No, but see, that's not what he's talking about, being scared. He's talking about this reverential awe, this, this being awed at the glory of God. You see, because we realize that, that we can't stand before him, that we, we are, are before a holy God. We are rotten sinners. And yet there is forgiveness that we do not deserve. And so we are awed by his grace. Awed by it. Not so that we fear in that we are scared away, but, but, but fear in that we are simultaneously awed and drawn to him. Kind of like, like if you see the Grand Canyon, right? Or, the, or Niagara Falls, or, or on a dark, clear night, in the middle of nowhere, you look up and see just the, the magnificence of the Milky Way across the sky. And, and you're just transfixed upon it. And it's amazing and it's beautiful and it's glorious. And that's how we should be as we come before God. We should behold his glory and be overwhelmed by it. Be, be struck with just how amazing it is. That we take it in. That we fear God. That's why the psalmist also says in Psalm 34, glorify the Lord with me and let us exalt the Lord together. You see, he's talking about a God here who's not just a warm, fuzzy God is love God, right? That's how our culture wants to think about God. God is love, and he is. Don't get me wrong. That's biblical. That's a right understanding. God is love, but God is not just love. We need to remember what Hebrews 12 tell, tells us. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. He is holy. He is just. He is righteous. And so we come back to our traditional worship service in our traditional sanctuary and we need to be reminded of this in Solomon's temple in the, the Old Testament temple there, there, there was this idea of holiness residing there because that's the place where God resided it's the place where you had to go if you wanted to meet with God it was the, the place where sacrifices were offered so that, that your sins were atoned for and <clears throat> the house of the Lord was that building. But now in our day, this side of the cross, the house of the Lord is no longer a building. It is us. Again, in Hebrews, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confession 
our, hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. You see, our, our boasting, our hope, our confidence is not in a, a beautiful building. It's not in a, a traditional worship service. Our boasting, our hope, our confidence is in Christ. In, in him who was holy, in him who took on human flesh, in him who died on the cross for our sins, in him who rose from the dead, in him who ascended on high, in him who will return and reign for all of eternity. That is where our hope is. That is where our confidence is. That is where our boasting is. And he has sent us his spirit who dwells within us and who has made us into his house. He is building us into his house. We are the holy house of God, not in a building per se. We meet in a building, but the house of God is the church of God, the people of God. You and me, if one Sunday we decided to gather instead of in this room, but, but out on the ball fields and we just met out there, we would no less be in the house of God than we are right now. Or in a park down the street, or anywhere else, as we gather together as the people of God, we are the house of God. We don't need to go off to some place in Jerusalem to offer sacrifices, because the sacrifice once in all has been offered for us through the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Christ Jesus our Lord. And so the hour indeed has come when the true worshipers worship the Father in spirit and in truth, as Jesus said. And so this morning I ask you this, are you such a person? Are you such a person who, who desires to worship him in spirit and in truth? Are you such a person who recognizes the glory of God? Are you such a person who realizes your sinfulness and realizes that there is nothing you can do to make yourself holy? Well, trust in him. Trust in him today and know that your sins are forgiven in Christ Jesus. Know that your sins are forgiven, that you are washed clean from any sin, washed clean from any blemish, that you are made holy in him. And gathered with the people of God, you are the house of God. So that we may all say with the psalmist, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And whenever we gather in the name of the Lord, whenever we gather in the name of the Lord, wherever we gather in the name of the Lord, let us do so with the mindset of the psalmist who says, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself. Where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Amen. Lord God, may we indeed be those who ever sing your praise. May we be your people and your house. We ask it in Jesus' name.